RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. So that meant that you could essentially take out a life insurance policy on any life that you wish to. And that meant that actually the most common sort of use of life insurance at this time was actually as a means of, of sort of speculating or gambling on the deaths of famous people. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner of the law firm RPC, and in each episode, I'm joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week, we have Craig Turnbull, and our topic is the equitable life and the birth of modern life assurance. Craig is currently a senior technical specialist at the Bank of England, but before that, he was an investment director at Aberdeen Standard Investments and also managing director of Moody's Analytics. He has been a committee member of the Scottish Financial Risk Academy, and until recently, sat on the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries Research and Thought Leadership Board. Uh, If that is not enough, uh, he has also written a book called A History of British Actuarial Thought, in which he discusses, amongst other things, the developments that led to the creation of equitable life and the birth of modern life assurance, which is what we're going to discuss today. So, Craig, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Peter. It's a delight to be here. And um, we should point out at this stage that The views that you're expressing today are are your personal views uh, and don't reflect the the, the views of of the Bank of England. But uh, you studied maths, um, statistics and finance at the University of Strathclyde. Does that mean that you knew pretty early on that you wanted to be you wanted to lead the life of an actuary? (laughs) Yeah, I think that's probably uh, sad, but true, I must confess. I think... um, I first, I think, discovered the, the actuarial um, sort of profession in one of these career reference books in, in the school library. And um, I think it was pretty much love at first sight, really. I think I pretty much um, instantly decided then that I, I would like to be an actuary. I think the, the sort of mixture of, of sort of maths and stats and, and sort of the business finance application and, and being a member of a sort of, you know, respected and learned profession, all those things were really appealing to me. And so, so yes, I very much sort of set off on this journey um, from, uh, I guess, from about age uh, 16 and, uh, well, here we are. But uh, anyway, we're here to discuss equitable life. Um, now, now, where to start? Okay. Um, on, this, on this rare occasion, rather than starting at the beginning, I think we probably should start at the end because uh, about 20 years ago, equitable life, uh, which was uh, at the time uh, the, the world's oldest mutual insurer, uh, lost a very well-publicised case in the, in the House of Lords um, that resulted in an immediate... £1.5 billion pound increase in its long-term liabilities. And, and as a result, sadly, kind of a few months later, it, it closed the new business. And in 2019, it was eventually sold and, and ceased to exist in many respects. So, so that is how it ended. And it's a, it's a sad ending for such a, a, an esteemed organisation. But our aim in this podcast is to discuss how it started. And to do that, we need to go back 250 years or so because Equitable Life was founded in 1762. And as we'll discuss, it was the first modern life assurer. Um, but Craig, if you could give us a little bit of context, first and foremost. So, so let's go back a little bit further than that. So 1700, say, um, could you explain to us at a very high level um, what life assurance looked like um, in 1700? I, I guess what life assurance is in its very, very loosest, broadest sense. Back in the 1700s, 
life assurance then, um, as we'd recognise this day, was, was, was really extremely limited. I think that was in part because really that there was there was little of the demand in the sense that the idea of providing financial protection to a spouse or, or children in the event of your death you know that that was very much part of 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 the sort of salaried middle class that really brought that that demand for that type of product and so it wasn't really i think until later in the industrial revolution and, and the sort of emergence of, of the middle classes of, of sort of if you like victorian britain where that that type of demand really emerged but back in 1700, probably the most common sort of constructive use of, of life assurance wasn't actually to insure your own life, but it was to insure someone else's. Um, and most typically, that would be perhaps to, for example, provide financial protection to cover the death of a debtor. If someone owed, owed you money whose who's debt would, would sort of die with the debtor. Um, another a sort of key background element, if you like, to the landscape at this time in insurance was that... Um, there was no legal concept of, of insurable interest at this time. So that meant that you could essentially take out a life assurance policy on any life that you wish to. And that meant that actually the most common use of life assurance at this time was actually as a means of, of sort of speculating or gambling on, on the deaths of, of famous people. So you know, often life assurance policies would be taken out on, on you know, the Pope, um, or, or various, you know, uh, European monarchs, not because the, the individual had any actual, you know, financial exposure to them, but simply as a means of essentially of, of sort of gambling and, and, and speculating. So, so, that, so that's where we started, um, let's say 1700, that's what life assurance looked like at, at that stage. Um, just so that we have a, a, an awareness of where we're headed, could you give us a, a sort of summary of what, what life assurance is now, what it looks like now? Yeah, well, certainly. So as I say, back then, life assurance was typically purely short term. So you'd buy, you know, a one year assurance contract. And interestingly, back then, the, the life assurance premium that you'd pay wouldn't vary by age. It would simply typically be 5% of the, of the sum assured that you, you took out. But there would be quite strict age limits. So typically, you wouldn't be allowed to take out life assurance by the insurer if you were over 45 was the, was the usual rule. So it's a very, very simple product, very simply priced and only available if you met some fairly strict criteria. Um, whereas in today's world, there is, of course, there's much more choice around the types of life assurance products that, that are available. Perhaps most fundamentally, as well as short term life assurance policies being available, there's also much longer term policies such as indeed um, whole of life policies where policy will actually pay with certainty and the only uncertainty is around when it pays and so those types of policies are, are much more essentially long-term savings vehicles um, that, that contrast quite sharply with the sort of um, one-year um, term assurance that was available in 1700. So in order to get to modern life assurance you need kind of raw data which we'll come on to in a moment but you also need that that theoretical mathematical foundation uh, which just simply didn't exist, I presume, in, say, 1650 or, or, or wherever. So in order to understand the risks of, say, a 25-year-old dying in the next five years, that requires an understanding of, of probability, of statistics. So, so how did maths and our understanding of probability develop in the century leading up to equitable life? And please remember that the vast majority of listeners will be completely innumerate. <laughs> so, 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 so treat us kindly. <laughs> absolutely. No, and you're absolutely right. Um, the, the sort of 
the modern emergence of, of probability theory was actually really key to the whole development of actuarial science and, and development of these types of products. Um, and I think what's interesting about the history of probability is that it really it doesn't have the sort of ancient mathematical history that, say, something like geometry has. You know, there's no equivalent to Euclid's elements for probability. And there's lots of interesting historical speculation about quite why that is and whether there's something just innately, you know, counterintuitive about probability to humans that, that, that sort of um, stalled the, the mathematical development of it as a, as a discipline. But for whatever reason, it really wasn't until the 1650s that really probability in its sort of modern sense started to emerge. And it was two famous mathematicians, Pascal and Fermat, they uh, had a, a series of, sort of letters that they, where they corresponded with each other and really started to, to develop the fundamental ideas that we associate now with probability. And perhaps interestingly, from a financial and actuarial point of view, um, and indeed maybe even a legal point of view, the question that Pascal and Fermat were sort of wrestling with was essentially about how to attach a value, a certain value or a value today to some sort of uncertain cash flow outcome. And essentially where they got to, which is maybe it seems really obvious to the modern mathematician, where they got to was that you calculate essentially that cash flow's average value, where the average uses the probabilities you attach to each of the possible outcomes for that cash flow. So, you know, if you have a 50% chance of gaining 100 and a 50% chance of getting nothing, the expected value there is is, is 50. Uh, and that's essentially the value you put in that cash flow. Now, that, as I say, that sounds extraordinarily simple, but that concept wasn't really particularly well developed, at least not mathematically, until that correspondence. Finally, another strand which is important here um, that you mentioned, Peter, is, is the emergence of, sort of statistical thinking as well as pure probability. So what I, what I mean there is that probability is the idea of, you know, if you take the fact that you know that, say, a dice has six sides and, and each side is equally likely, then you can use some mathematical tools to, say, estimate the probability of you know, the sum of the next six dice adding up to you know, 30, say. So that's probability. But statistics is kind of taking it the other way around. It's saying, let's suppose we observe that we've rolled a dice six times and the total summed up to 30. What can we infer from that observation about the characteristics of the dice. Um, and that is a, a sort of a more subtle, challenging problem that involves many almost philosophical issues as well as pure mathematical ones. And that logic of statistical inference is sort of, again, fundamental to things like estimating mortality rates. So that you observe something, what can you infer about the population's mortality characteristics, how much confidence you have in that? And it was really another mathematician called Bernoulli who in 1713, I think it would be, published a very important book that included the first sort of mathematical ideas in, in this sort of logic of statistical inference, which again, won't we'll bore the, the listeners with the details of that, but ideas of the law of large numbers and, and, and interesting sort of limit theorems and maths that Bernoulli developed. It really represented, I think, a new sort of, really was where I think probability emerged as a full branch of applied maths. And it was a really you know, interesting discipline within, within the broader framework of maths. And again, as I say, really important to start to, to think about what we can infer from what we observe about probabilities and, and, and populations.
I love the fact that um, the more we, one looks at insurance, the more one realizes how it interacts with other disciplines and other other skills. And I just love the fact that you know that the insurance we have today is based on you know the mathematical of of Pascal, Fermat, and his last last theorem. Although that's not directly relevant to to insurance, <laughs> Bernoulli. Um, and, and, and actually, you didn't mention Galileo, but Galileo is in, involved with it as well. So I, I, I find that fascinating, the way that maths is the basis for, for insurance in, in the way that you've been discussing. But basically, it's not just the maths. Um, as I mentioned a few moments ago, you need the raw data. So, so where did the raw data come from for death rates uh, and so on? And, and who was analysing that raw data? So again, around very much the same time as, as Pascal and, and Fermat, those first steps towards trying to understand mortality data and what it can tell us about, you know, basically what we call mortality rates, you know, the probability of, of dying at a particular age. Um, that sort of, if you like, empirical work started to develop independently and alongside that, that sort of mathematical development of probability theory. Now, the first efforts there, there was a chap in London called John Grant, um, who was important again in Holland. Johan de Witt was important there in, in producing similar analysis. These guys produced really the very first mortality tables, you know, tables of numbers that said, for a given age, here's a probability of that individual of that age dying in the next year. Now, at that time, though, these were extremely rough and ready estimates. And one of the reasons they were so rough and ready was because the data that they referred to was itself extremely limited. It was usually based on a given city authority's bills of mortality. So, for example, in London, the London bills of mortality essentially recorded deaths, but it didn't at that time even record age at death. So it's very hard to use these records to infer very much about how the probability of dying varies with age if you don't actually know the age of people when they die. So there were some heroic assumptions that had to be made around, so for example, typically these London bills of mortality would record the cause of death. And so you can infer, well, certain causes tend to happen at certain ages. And so with a few sort of, you know, guesstimates and leaps of faith there, you can start to make some inferences. Uh, but really, it was extremely rough. Now, the critical development there, though, the real important breakthrough occurred in 1693. And that was when Edmund Haley of Haley's Comet fame made a really important breakthrough. And the breakthrough there was primarily driven by the data and the quality of data that he was able to access. Now, in particular, what he found out was that there was a small town in Germany called Breslau. And for whatever reason, this was the one town in Europe where they had bills of mortality that did record the age of people when they died. And so that information was a sort of goldmine, if you like, in terms of the quality of data that could be used to make these sort of inferences about the, the shape of, of mortality rates and how they vary through time. And so Haley really pioneered the, the use of this type of data to produce what I would really think of as the first real mortality table, something that really did have a fairly granular description of how mortality rates varied vary by age. And um, you mentioned history there, so we ought to put it in some sort of historical context as well. And I suppose the period in the early 1700s was the Enlightenment was was underway um, and kind of the creation of financial structures. And more than anything else, it was a boom time for, for speculation. Um, obviously, there were no offices then, not in the way that we think of offices now. So most business was conducted in, in coffee houses and kind of listeners to this podcast will already be familiar with, with Lloyd's Coffee House, 
um, which opened in 1686, and that went on to become Lloyd's of London. But the more important one for this story is, is Jonathan's Coffee House. And in, in 1698, um, it started to publish daily stock prices, and, and it became a sort of kind of proto-stock exchange in the city of London. And stocks were bought and sold in unlimited companies, and, and fortunes were made and lost kind of rapidly. The most famous of which, um, in 1720, uh, was the, the uncontrolled investment in, in the South Sea Company, which saw uh, the formation and then the bursting of the South Sea bubble. Um, so, so that's the historical context within which we're talking about. Um, and within all of that, uh, what role did, did life assurance play at that stage? What, what do we know about the, the amount of life assurance being sold at that time and who was selling it? And, and I presume we, we talked early on about the very simple form of insurance. I, I assume that we're still talking about this very simple form of insurance as at, say, kind of 1750-ish. Yeah. That's right, Peter. So in the early 1700s, the first half century of the 1700s, really the, the product of, of life assurance didn't really evolve at all. And indeed, although I mentioned that, that Haley's mortality table was published in 1693 and you know, represented this sort of profound development in, in actuarial science, if you like, it was not put to any use at all in terms of actually pricing at life assurance. And I think that was partly because there were so many other factors at the time that, that mattered as much as age. Um, in terms of short-term life assurance pricing, you know, the, the occupation class and so on of the life. And also I think the market was so small that there was actually little incentive to, to sort of invest in creating more sophisticated pricing methods. And so very little innovation happened. Um, pricing remained at that sort of, um, that sort of simple way of, of pricing in a constant way across age with availability sort of, sort of subject to these strict age limits. So uh, as at 1750, we have three core ingredients First, we have kind of the raw data, kind of Ed, Edmund Haley um, kind of pulled together on, on death rates. Um, second, we have a, a greater understanding of probability and statistics with all those mathematicians that we've just talked about. And third, we had a feverishly entrepreneurial atmosphere. So who or what was it that brought all these things together into something that we would kind of regard more closely is modern life assurance. Yeah. So at this point in the story, a, a really interesting sort of entrepreneurial mathematician emerges in this scene who is called James Dodson. Um, now, there's a story that, again, it might be apocryphal, but the story is that Dodson in, in 1755 was aged 46 and he approached one of the insurers to obtain a life assurance policy and was rejected because he was over the strict age limit of 45. And that sort of spurs him on to, um, to thinking about essentially how this can be done better. And particularly, he advocated that it was, it was kind of obvious that now was the time to start developing you know, age-dependent premium rates for life assurance. But much more than that, he, he actually conceived a completely new form of life assurance product. So as we've mentioned at this time, really the only form of life assurance that was being sold was one-year term assurance. And Dodson introduced the idea of the whole-of-life policy. So instead of buying short-term assurance that would only pay out very rarely, the whole-of-life policy is guaranteed to pay out, but just don't know when. And another revolutionary concept that he introduced here was that this would be paid for not by a single lump sum up front, but by level regular premiums that were payable throughout the life of the policyholder. 
Now, that's important because if we think about it, we know that mortality rates will tend to increase with age. And so that means that if we pay level regular premiums over our you know, sort of policy lifetime, it means that the premiums that we pay in the early years will be more than enough to compensate for the mortality that we expect to experience in those years. But the, the premiums we pay in the later years won't be enough on their own to pay for that mortality experience or behavior in the later years. So what that implies is that these regular premiums, particularly in the early years, have a sort of saving component. You're paying more than you need for the life assurance that you're getting with that one annual premium. And so essentially what's been created here is, is a long-term savings product, something that's completely the opposite, really, of a short-term pure insurance product. So that, I think that was a really important moment for the life assurance sort of industry to see that it, it could exist as a provider of long-term savings as well as short-term sort of insurance. Now, the final element of Dodson's sort of conception that was so important uh, as well was that he advocated that this insurance should be provided through a mutual partnership, a mutual partnership with unlimited liability. But importantly, in his conception, there would be essentially two distinct sort of classes of policyholder. There'd be one type of policyholder who would simply buy a policy on fixed terms. So they'd say, okay, I'll pay this regular premium. I'll get this sum assured when I die. And that's straightforward. But there'd be a second class, which are known as the with profit policyholders, who would be offered the insurance actually on cheaper terms than the other non-profit policyholders. But they'd be doing so as compensation for essentially the unlimited risks that they were underwriting. So they were on the hook for making good on the risk that they were exposed to through the provision of the insurance to the non-policyholders. They would expect to earn a return on that because that would be the way that the without profit policyholders business was priced. But nonetheless, they had an unlimited liability. So if everyone died tomorrow, they would have an unlimited exposure to funding that loss. And so that conception of these two classes of policyholders with different risk and rewards, if you like, in the business was, again, another fundamental idea that sort of defined his conception of this new form of insurance company. Perhaps interestingly, Dodson perhaps ironically died just two years after his life assurance policy was rejected. So um, you might say that the insurance company wasn't so wrong after all. A, a, a good bit of underwriting. <laughs> exactly. Indeed it was. So it's a bit of a shame. So Dodson, as a result of that, didn't see his conception brought to life. Uh, but it really was brought to life in the years following. So five years after his death was when, when Equal Life was established. So, so tell us about that. How did Dodson's vision become a reality? So interestingly, Expo was, was really established in a very, very sort of faithful way to Dodson's conception. So really, all these characteristics I've just described were very much put in place as described by the Expo as a mutual life office. But interestingly, perhaps for the first sort of 10 years or so, as I say, Expo did sort of exist as is described by Dodson, but it, it sort of grew at a very slow rate. So after 10 years in 1772, it only had you know, maybe 600 policyholders in total. So it wasn't like a raging success out of the blocks. But I think a few things started to happen in the 1770s that really created the sort of right conditions for much faster growth. One was um, the Life Insurance Act of 1774, which established the idea of insurable interest. The second one was that after 10 years, the Expo started to consider just how much profit it was making and what to do with it. So up until then, there'd been no distribution of any profit to the with-profit policyholders. 
But at this point in time, we thought, actually, let's start working out what the books look like and what we do with that money. Now, at that point, another really interesting historical character becomes very important. Uh, and he was called Richard Price. Now, I think Price is perhaps one of the, the most interesting historical figures in, in, in actuarial science. So he was a liberal political thinker, very close friends with a number of the American founding fathers. So an interesting character all around. But in our story, it was very important because he provided a lot of actuarial guidance to the equitable in its early years, really from around 1768 until his, his death in the 1780s. And perhaps interestingly, it was Price's nephew, William Morgan, who was appointed Equitable's chief actuary during this, this sort of time of, of, of increasing growth in 1775. And Morgan held that post for a full 50 years. And what they found was that the business had been actually hugely profitable. They were using mortality rates that Dodson had designed using data from the early 1700s. You know, mortality had, had improved a great deal since then. Clearly, they were tending to underwrite and, and only write insurance on healthy lives and on perhaps sort of, if you like, middle class lives, whereas the Dodson data was based on London population data. And so their business was hugely profitable and there was a, a, a really substantial surplus that was, that was building. And so the question then became, well, what do we do with it? How do we give it to the with profit policyholders? And that's another key sort of step in the design of the with profit policy that Richard Price was completely instrumental in. Because he recommended to the equitable that rather than paying these profits out to the with profit policyholders in the form of cash, cash dividends, instead we distribute the surplus as a form of increase to their sum assured. And so that sort of kept, if you like, it almost forced the policyholders to reinvest um, their, their money in, into the, the business again. And so as a result of that recommendation, the first what we call reversionary bonus was paid in 1781. And given that sort of visible success, the business started to attract lots of new business. And really from 1780 onwards, the business really started to grow quite exponentially. So, I mean, give us some figures. I mean, you mentioned 600 policyholders in 1770-ish. I mean, how, how, how did it grow? How did, that, how did assets grow, for example? Yeah. So between sort of 1776 and 1800, there was two uh, valuations performed. These valuations weren't performed every year, by the way, because they're so cumbersome to perform. But between that sort of 25-year period, the last quarter of the 18th century, the assets of the equitable grew from around £42,000 to over £1 million. So, you know, it was a genuinely successful business. It was enormously profitable. So, I mean, so we, we've got to the end of our story, in effect. We, we've, we have now got to the point where everything, all the stars have aligned, and you also happen to have a genius who comes along and puts all those stars together and creates the, the theoretical structure for the equitable, and then the equitable is itself created. So um, I suppose, last question, the legacy of the equitable. It, was that the template for, for the growth of life assurance in the, in the 1800s and, and beyond? And, and, and to what extent is it still the template for life assurance now? So it was very much a template at the start of the 19th century for British life assurance. And there was you know, dozens of new mutual life offices were created very much in the same design as the Expo. Um, and so really... Between that time, between the you know, sort of 1780s and arguably the, the 1980s, really for 200 years, the British Life Office, the With Profit Policy, inevitably had various evolutions through time, terminal bonuses, industrial policies, and so on. But the fundamental ideas, as first described by Dodson, developed by Price, and implemented by Morgan, 
those fundamental ideas were still in play and and really lasted for 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 you know as I say some two hundred years in a sustainable and arguably quite successful way. But perhaps you know all things must pass. So I think when we look at today, today's insurance world is different. The with profit policy um, is no longer, I think, something that is is so attractive to the modern consumer. Um, at the heart of the with profit policy was a huge amount of discretion. So the insurance company and its actuaries had a huge amount of discretion to really pay out whatever they thought was appropriate. And from 1780 onwards, that created lots of tension and difficulty. And I think probably the modern consumer is probably less minded to, to, to have a policy with that degree of uncertainty and discretion and basically how its payout works. So yeah, we're in a different world today. And I think that's interesting as well. You know, so if we look at the life sector and indeed the, the broader, you know, savings sector, if you like, in, in, in the UK and indeed beyond, you know, we see, you know, saving rates are at historically low levels, interest rates are historically low levels. So I think in a way, we're probably at a, a time that's definitely right for a new James Dodson to come along and uh, with, a, with a new innovative solution to this challenge, comes up with a new long-term savings product that might last the, the next couple of hundred years. And finally, um, what, what bit of advice would you give to uh, a young person thinking of entering the world of, of life assurance? Would you recommend it to them? And what bit of advice would you give? I think I'd actually um, go back to the previous comment. It's, it's, it's a really interesting time with real challenges, societal challenges, I think, just now in terms of you know long-term financial risk sharing, how we save in a way which is sustainable and economic and that, that works for people. So I think there is, as I said, we're, we're, we're right for more innovation at this time. And uh, yeah, so if anyone uh, does see themselves as the next James Dodson, I, I would really encourage them to, to, to go ahead and go for it. Brilliant. Thanks, Craig. That was absolutely wonderful. Thank you for your time. Thanks very much, Peter. My pleasure. RPC Radio. Radio. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and please rate, review and share it. It really does help. Please also listen to another of our podcasts, Taxing Matters, which is hosted by my brilliant colleague, Alice Kemp. Insurance Covered is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you and I hope you have a lovely day.